So, remember how easy it was in your 20s? You had so much energy. You could get away with late night drive thrusts. You could pitch a trouser tent at a moment's notice. Yeah, well, you had plenty of testosterone, and it's time to get it back. You could get testosterone injections, but that involves awkward doctor visits, expensive medical bills, and the worst part? Once you opt for artificial testosterone, you will suppress your body's ability to naturally produce it even more. Wait, isn't that the problem in the first place? Before considering the pharmaceutical option, there are ways you can naturally raise your testosterone, and one of the easiest ways is by using the Legacy Test Stack from Legacy Sports Nutrition. Test X9 has 9 key ingredients clinically proven to support natural testosterone production, and T-Assist is designed to supercharge T-boosting effects with added anti-estrogen compounds. Nick Aldis, founder of Legacy Sports Nutrition, has been blown away by the feedback that customers have sent in after using the Ultimate Test Stack. Guys are feeling stronger in the gym, have more energy. Guys in their late 30s have reported getting morning wood for the first time in years. And one even reported becoming a father after four years of trying. No matter what you do, if you're a guy, having optimum testosterone levels is the key to looking, feeling, and performing better. Try the Ultimate Test Stack today. Go to LegacySupps.com. That is L-E-G-A-C-Y-S-U-P-P-S dot com and use promo code THEPODCAST in all capitals D-A-P-O-D-C-A-S-T for 10% off your entire order. <laughs> and now, this is the moment podcasting fans listening around the world have been waiting for. Coming to you not so live from a listening device of your choice. It's time! Podcasting out of this corner, a mixed martial talker, holding no professional record. He stands at six feet one and one half inches tall, weighing in at whatever he feels like, hailing out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, presenting the sometimes angry, always funny, Self-proclaimed podcasting champion of the world, Steve Fingerstyles! So, welcome to another rendition of the podcast. I am here once again, always again, and brought to you by First Row Collectibles. If you're into nerd culture, if you're into sports memorabilia, if you're into wrestling memorabilia please visit firstroll.ca use promo code the podcast 20 you'll get 20 percent off they ship worldwide they got everything from comic books to signed sports memorabilia to wrestling memorabilia signed wrestling figures signed old wwwf magazines and all that sort of stuff there like i said they update daily so please visit them at firstrow.ca and if you're into video games and books please visit bossfightbooks.com today for great books on classic video games you'll find titles like galaga shadow of the colossus world of warcraft and so many others everything you see on their websites available in paperback and ebook format so please check them out at bossfightbooks.com and if you want to support me directly please visit my merchandise store i tpublic.com or scroll down on today's advice it's 
embedded right there. Click on that link. It takes you right to the merchandise store. I got everything from hoodies to t-shirts to onesies to travel mugs to anything you need or want. It is literally there. But the most important thing, the most free thing, the thing you should be doing on a regular basis, please rate, subscribe, review on all major platforms, most specifically Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. So this week's guest is pretty much a living legend. He is a former multiple-time NWA Tag Team Champ, a Rookie of the Year, and a Hall of Famer. Former professional wrestler, Mr. Les Thatcher. Hey, Steve. How you doing? I'm doing fantastic, my friend. How are you today? Uh, not bad for an old guy. <laughs> uh, you know, I was listening to you uh, hit the commercial. Right. And you mentioned WWF Magazine signed. Yes. Okay, I probably edited those magazines because I think that's the only magazines that WWWF ever had. I did five editions for Vince Jr. back in the late 70s. And you know what? I do do my research, my friend, and I sort of slit that in there because I know you were a part of that, and I do want to discuss this, of course. And that is crazy. So were you involved in, like, the original magazines that ever were published? Uh, no, I'm not that old. But, well, you know, I got, I, as we go on with this, you'll find a lot of my career, a lot of the, the different paths that my career has taken have just been more I, I, by accident or happenstance or, you know, I happen to be in the right place at the right time or right. somebody suggested something at the right time. But, um, yeah, I, um, I got fascinated in 1966, the first time I wrestled in Georgia, uh, at watching Leo Garibaldi, the booker, and one of my mentors, probably one of the greatest bookers ever in, in my 61 years plus. Okay. Anyway, uh, but he used to do the, the uh, Atlanta program, and I've watched him put that together, and it was just, I don't know, what kind of fascinated me, you know? Uh-huh. I had I, messed around with uh, printing class, uh, you know, uh, running printing press and stuff, uh, as, a, as a kid in uh, junior high and high school. Right. But anyway, I got to playing around with it, and so um, I did one, like a little, uh, just a, a, a single-fold uh, program started with Mid-Atlantic. Okay. And then we got to a little bigger magazine, and then we got a little bigger, and then we got the artist uh, rendered covers, mm. then we went to All Color, I, and the covers have never been, I mean, the ones I did for Vince, right. the ones I did for Mid-Atlantic, we did one issue for NWA in, in 1970, in the middle of the 70s, in 75. Okay. Uh, those are the only art-rendered wrestling magazine covers I've ever seen in my life. I wow. mean, there may be a thousand more, but I've never laid eyes on them. But uh, there's an artist in Charlotte at Cal Byer Studios mm-hmm. that uh, did the covers for all those things for me. But anyway... I was doing the Crockett magazines, and then uh, Jimmy came back from the NWA meeting and said, hey, let's, uh, you know, we got, we got a little project. I said, what's that? He said, you're doing a magazine for the entire Alliance. Yeah, that's oh, wow. a little project. Why not? Yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, uh, it, it's unique if, if you ever see one. One page for each uh, promotion that was in uh, the National Wrestling Alliance at that point in time. Uh, and Terry Funk was a world champion, and, and he is on the cover and the centerfold. That's something that we started, too, uh, with the Crockett magazines, was uh, a, a featured centerfold. Mm. Like with Steamboat, we had him at the beach holding a surfboard. Uh, with Wahoo, he was on a, 
a horse, you know, with a headdress and the whole thing. So they were, you know, there's a theme for it. So anyway, those magazines got around and, uh, uh, I don't know, must have been 77, 78, I guess, uh, George Napolitano, who was a dear friend and and is a a Brooklynite and, and, you know, has been a great photographer and a writer for wrestling magazines, my God, going back into the 70s, uh, had contacted me and he and Vince Jr., sat down, talked about that, and he said, we want to do a magazine. Mm-hmm. And so uh, George shot the photographs, uh, put the content together, packaged it all up, sent it to me in Charlotte, and so we started doing WWWF Action. Wow. And uh, my artist, I mean, th- th- it's the same con- concept as the Mid-Atlantic magazine. Okay. With the theme uh, cover, and they're rare. I, they, they, I don't know what the, this, uh, the collectibles place their charges. Mm-hmm. I get uh, 100 bucks a copy for those. Yeah, that sounds about right. I, yeah. Yeah. And, a, like, and, and the funk, because that was, that was only once, one and done. Mm-hmm. Uh, the NWA, I'll take a buck and a half for those. A hundred and a half, I shouldn't say a buck and a half. <laughs> Somebody else sent me a dollar for this. Yeah, and it's, it's amazing. Um, you know how those things—they're uh, historical, I guess. A lot, I mean, a lot of people value. The first time I saw, you know, we sold it. I think we sold the, the Mid Atlantic magazines at two bucks a pop back in the seventies. Okay. But anyway, the first time I saw these things on a merchandise table would have been at the first Charlotte Fan Fest, which would have mm. been about fifteen years ago, I'm thinking, or something like that. Okay. And I stopped. And I pulled up short. I, they were selling that magazine for 50 bucks a shot. Right. And Jackie Crockett, one of the Crockett family that, you know, that I had worked with there, and uh, he had walked up, and I said, look at this. He said, yeah, I know. I said, the crazy thing is, the first thing that crossed my mind is, uh, you know, back then, uh, a couple times, Jimmy uh, Jr., uh, Jim Crockett Jr., who was in charge at the time, okay. might have walked into the... Uh, Lounge and Jackie, you and Les, are we up? To, oh, we're just taking a break. Listen, while you're on, would you go out in the warehouse and find some of those out of date magazines and get, you know, so we got more room, get rid of sure. I thought, Jesus, I wish I'd have carried a couple of cases of magazines <laughs> home with me. Right. At those prices, right? No kidding. But yeah, so that's, that's how that all came about. And, uh, and, you know, I, I did some writing for Wrestling Review, uh, for um, uh, Wrestling News. Um, okay. You know, well, I traded out sometimes, right. you know, with the magazines. So, but yeah, that's that's been a big part of my life, too, in this stupid business of ours. Yeah, no kidding. It's true. And even the other thing, I was not aware of this, that you, were, you helped produce the first ever wrestling t-shirt. Is this right? The first wrestling t-shirt was actually my brainstorm. Oh, wow. And, and a drug-induced... No, I'm teasing. Okay, I was going to say, this is going to get good. <laughs> no, you know, I... Well, you know, T-shirts... Realize, I'll be 81 years old, the 28th of this month, so right. I, when I'm talking here, I, I live this. This is not something I read about. Exactly. Uh, you know, uh, when I was a kid, there was one... It was a T-shirt. It was, it was a white one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was it. Wow. With nothing written on it, right? Exactly, yeah. And, and of course, T-shirts started to get to be the fad in, in the 60s, and uh, but there was nothing in wrestling. And then around 70, 71, I thought, this is crazy, you know? 
uh, of course, you know, kayfabe was uh, in vogue, thank right. God. Yeah. And uh, so it would have had to have been just baby faces, but then that would have been great too. So I, I you know, came up, I, I, I presented the idea to a couple different promoters. Mm-hmm. Uh, we sell wrestling. You know, and at the time, well, like the magazine thing that we did, you know, in the, in the, that was unique and, and actually, before, you know, ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Uh, because promoters promoted wrestling, you know. Exactly. Back then, merchandise was basically, uh, there was a place called Mass Photo Print, I think it was in Houston, or one of the Texas okay. cities anyway. You could buy 100 glossy 8x10s for 10 bucks. Wow. Right? And that was the that was our merchandise. Yeah, we, yeah. You know, you carry those around, you sell them for a buck a piece, mm-hmm. you know. And so that, that was promoters, not a t-shirt, wow, I, you know, nobody... So anyway, uh, in early 72, mm-hmm. sitting down with Jack and Jerry Briscoe, we, and Jerry and I both were living in Charlotte. Jack was obviously traveling. And, okay. uh, he was in town, and, and we were sitting down having a couple of beers and just talking in general, you know, not about anything in particular. Right. And I brought up uh, my frustration about the T-shirt thing. And he said, what do you thought? And I said, well, you know, I've come up with this, this idea. I think it'll work. And I suggested to a couple of motors, and they're not interested. So, well, you know, so I laid it out. And Jack said, well, why don't we do it? I said, we? He said, yeah, the three of us will th- you know, each throw in a third, and let's do it. So that's that's how it started. So the Briscoe, uh, I came up, you know, with the idea of Briscoe Booster. Mm, okay. And uh, <laughs> so uh, I contacted this young wrestler, and for 25 bucks, this young upcoming star, by the name of Jerry Lawler, <laughs> did the, the pen and ink uh, drawing for me. I wish I had that now as oh, a member of the Gooey thing, right? Right? So, that would be cool. Lord knows. So anyway, that's how the, t- you know, the T-shirt started. And uh, Jerry and I, uh, you know, hauled him around to the, uh, the buildings. And of course, Jack was all over the country at the time. Sure. Um, but yeah, that, that's how the whole thing started. And uh, I, I know Jerry and I teased about it. I said, Jesus, if we just got 1% of all the wrestling T-shirt sales <laughs> today, where the hell could we could live in Bermuda? We could have our, our, our winter home in Bermuda. Right. right? <laughs> but, yeah, so I mean, that was in 1972. And, by the way, for a quick com- throw in a quick commercial. Of course, go for you it. You get a copy of that first T-shirt at Pro Wrestling Tees now. Oh, that's so cool. Okay, so you said it. 61 years in the wrestling business. When did you see yes. your first match? When did you think you could actually be a wrestler? Because obviously everyone knows. You said it too. Kayfabe was huge back in the day. No one knew what was going on. It was so guarded. How did you even get in the door to begin with? I give up. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me. Um, well, you know, I became a fan. I guess it was about nine years old. I saw okay. it on a neighbor's television. We didn't have a TV in our house at that particular time. Okay. And neighbors had a little 10-inch black or white set. Mm-hmm. And they said, we're going over to the Benzingers, that's the family's name, to watch wrestling. Right. I'd never seen a wrestling match in my life. <laughs> and I sat there, I was fascinated. Okay. It was like Ivan Rasputin, the Russian bear, and Dr. Ed Meski, and Don right. Eagle, and all these characters. And right. The, the rest, I mean, the, the wrestling fascinated me too. You know, I mean, it wasn't it just it wasn't the characters so much, but the, the whole thing. It, it just and I was hooked, and uh, I became my 
my idol as a child mm -hmm. was a was a so-so wrestler by the name of Nature Boy Buddy Rogers. <laughs> sure. Once once I got smart enough in the business, Steve, I realized I couldn't have picked a better role model. <laughs> right. If, if I'd have been smart to the business, right? <laughs> exactly. But yeah. There was just something about Rogers. Okay. Watching him walk that aisle. Right. He was special. Mm -hmm. I mean, he didn't have to tell you that. Nobody had to say it. You knew it. I yeah. mean, it was just there. You know, I, I've said uh, several times that over my life, two mm. people that I have, um, uh, well, Rogers, I never met as a wrestler. We get into that later. But mm. two people that I think could walk into a room and I have my back to the door and there'd be mother, other people obviously in the room, but I would know those people were there because that was a kind of personality that they projected, right? Okay, yeah. And that would have been Buddy Rogers and Lou Fez. Mm. Um, but yeah, that that's how I got hooked. I've got a, got a great picture of myself at age 12 with Buddy Rogers. Mm -hmm. at, wow. At the, the matches in Cincinnati. Yeah, I wouldn't trade it for the world. But I never got to meet him oh. while he was alive, while I was in the business, or while, you know, we were both in the business. Sure because we never end up the same place at the same time. Oh. I, that, if, if there is something in 61 years I think I've missed, I would have loved to have worked with Buddy Rogers and never had the opportunity. Oh, wow, that's but, cool. Um, yeah, I, uh, you know, I was in the sports. I was a jock. Baseball, football, basketball, yes. whole nine yards. Start as a competitive athlete, actually, at age seven with baseball. And, um, but wrestling was so fascinating. You're right, it was... It was a closed shop. Yeah. And it was frustrating. As it, you know, I, uh, high schools in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I grew up, uh, didn't have uh, wrestling. Oh. So it had to be the YMCAs, and there was nothing close by. And, okay. Uh, you know, so it was hit and miss all the time. Sure. And I'd ask a referee, how oh, are we getting this business? <laughs> oh, okay, you know, and, and so I, I drove to Al Half, was based in Columbus, Ohio, about 100 miles from my home. Okay. And that was one of the biggest wrestling promotions in the 50s and 60s. And probably every major star that you saw on national television was through that mm. office at one point in time. Okay. And so at age 18, uh, a buddy of mine rode with me, and we drove up to, up to Al Haft's office. And uh, the guy was the booker. I didn't know what the hell a booker was. <laughs> but he was, right. to me, a, a, a star wrestler, Frankie Talibur. Right. Uh, came out and talked to me. And... I was, I was probably 175, 80 pounds at the time. Okay. Um, and, you know, you know, you need to be bigger, kid, get some <laughs> more experience, and, you know, the, the, the song and dance. Sure. And I thought, oh, Jesus, you know, another wall, you know, another right. uh, re rejection, sort of. And I'm thinking, okay, how do I do this? And then, in 1959, mm hmm Russian Review Magazine did a story on Tony Santos as a little promotion, or I shouldn't say a little promotion, he promoted all over New England, mm -hmm. uh, based in Boston, mm -hmm. and the story was about Tony Santos offers an opportunity to young athletes interested in professional wrestling. Mm. So it was the first ever pro wrestling school. Oh, wow, look at that. Yeah, and you could, you could uh, train there okay. if you could get to Boston. Uh, for six months for three hundred dollars. Oh shit! Yeah, yeah. That's steep. Back and then. so anyway, that was uh, you know I sat down, I wrote them a letter, and and uh, you 
know, uh, ask cars a lot of questions. Of course. And somebody's listening to this and wrote him a letter. <laughs> yes, there was no internet. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, long distance phone calls cost uh, so much a minute and on, on, on. Anyway, right. I sent him a letter and he sent me back a trifle, okay. which I still have today, by the way. Oh, it's, wow. One of my, you know, uh, about the school and, you know, be a big TV star, see the world, the whole, you know, the whole nine yards. So mm-hmm. I got on a Greyhound bus in Cincinnati in February of 1960. Okay. Went to Boston and uh, lived in a $10 a week roomy house <laughs> and uh, worked on an ice, uh, ice truck. Mm. You, know, you old enough to know what an ice truck is, Steve. Oh, well, you know, living in Canada, I have a sort of an idea. <laughs> well, the real ice boxes. Yeah, exactly. Well, don't electric worry. Electric refrigerators, right? Well, a lot of people don't know this. I used, uh, in one of my first jobs, I used to make ice cream, and I was in charge of maintaining the freezer. So I totally know what it is to work in an ice box, my friend. Uh, well, this was uh, on the truck. A guy named Billy Graham, not that was his real name, no relation to the superstar. <laughs> okay. <Billy Graham. laughs> he had a martial arts background, but he all... He was training to wrestle at Santos, same time I did. We became friends. Okay. But he had this fuel and ice business in Back Bay section of Boston. Okay, okay. And so you want you want some good cardio sometimes, Steve. Mm. I didn't even know what the word cardio meant. At age 19. <laughs> but you take a 25-pound block of ice Ooh. with tongs, or two, one in each hand, Ooh. and then go up about three flights of tenement stairs, which are damn near straight up and down. Right. And put those blocks of ice in the top of these old refrigerators, old oh, ice boxes, shit. right? Yeah, yeah, okay. And I'm trying to gain weight and can't imagine why I'm not. <laughs> right? So, That's yeah. Funny. So, anyway, I, I worked for Billy. Yeah. And so we trained. And uh, I had my first match July the 4th, 1960. Okay. In Blue Hills, Maine. I worked twice. I hmm. uh, worked the preliminary. It was, there was four of us on the card. Okay. Uh, I worked the uh, opening match against Cowboy Ronnie Hill. The second match was a guy named Joe Sasso, Red Sasso, Ooh. against Bull Montana, who I had bought tickets to see as a 9- and 10-year-old. Oh, wow. And uh, in the main That's event, cool. it was uh, Sasso and I against uh, Bull and uh, Ronnie Hill. Mm-hmm. And that was the way it started. And, you know, one of the, f- the things I find fun is with young people especially. Right. Uh, and talking about this, and I say, you know, when I got smart to the business, of course, you know, today as a trainer, the, the problem is they come in the door thinking they're smarter than they really are. But right. Anyway, yes. they're, they're they know it's predetermined. They know yeah. it's a work, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, we didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And so I'll say to the kids, you know, when they smart me up, mm. when I said the morning of July the fourth. Really? Look, so you trained yes. and everything, and no one tapped their hat towards you. No yes, one said it. Yes. Wow! Well, we had fun. They had fun with us. I'll tell you the truth. The first That's two crazy. weeks there, they had to be my ass. <laughs> right? Of course. Just to see. Well, you know, it was again. It was a closed shop. Yeah. Are you going to stick? Exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. We're not going to. They weren't going to. You know, give you the keys to the kingdom, as it were. Mm-hmm. If they figure you're going to out and tell the world, right? That's true too. Yes. So they're going to find out, you, is this guy going to hang around? So so for the six months, well, you know, we, we did, they had their fun with us, and, and <laughs> we we do some amateur wrestling. I mean, you know, it wasn't all, um, but the way they taught us, here's the, cle- the clever thing. Okay. The way they taught us to work yeah. 
say you and you were there with me. Oh, uh, the trainer would say, Steve, you and Les get in the ring, okay? Um, I want you guys to work uh, to have a match. Okay. Now, listen, we're not paying you. No, there's not going to be a winner or a loser, so nobody needs to get hurt. So, just put the holes on, but apply no pressure. Wow, that's so smart. Holy shit! I didn't even think it was like wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, uh, you know, that's the way. Uh, yeah, the morning of July the 4th, um, Mr. Santos, one of his sons, came over uh, to my rooming house, which is just across the street from where the gym was. Mm-hmm. And uh, said, Dad wants to see you. And I'm thinking, God, it's the 4th of July, and it's early in the morning. Oh, I'm about to get my ass chewed, right? That's what I'm thinking. So I, I hustle over to the uh, gym, to the office, and he says, uh, "Well, I know you you got your you got your boots, and, and you got your gear, and uh, a lady that a lady wrestler that worked in the office there made me a couple jackets, and I you know so I I do have a coming clothes." He said, right. "Well, you better go back to the uh, your room and get packed. Today's <laughs> your day." Wow. So I, I went back, got my bag, came back, and I sat down with with him we're waiting uh, Joe Sasso was driving and Ronnie and, and Bull and myself are going to ride with him and right. so we're waiting for them to come and so I sit down and Mr. Santos says now you know you know how you guys uh, trained uh, putting holes on and not applying a lot of pressure yeah, yeah. I said yes sir I, I do okay well that's what you're going to do today <laughs> it wasn't like this is the way it's going to be the rest of your life right gotcha okay. but this you know we we want to make it easy on you today, right? So that was my and that was my initiation, Crazy. and then between Boston and Blue Hills, Maine, which I don't know exactly any longer, two hundred miles, two hundred fifty, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. The other three guys smartened me up on the way, right? Right, sure. <laughs> so we thought, you know, and so that's how it started. Yeah. Wow, that's great. Well, one thing I want to know that I'm interesting, that first wrestling school to open up, was there any backlash from the boys or anyone else saying, what, like, what are you doing here? You're going to ruin the business. No, it, well, oh, okay. because of the way it was being done, right? Mm. I mean, because some of the guys on the roster would come in, well, like Ronnie Hill had been in the gym with us. Okay. okay. Uh, there were a couple other guys that would come in. And uh, now I went to the shows uh in that rooming house where I lived, oh, wow. there were guys who were actually uh, Alex Medina, uh, Ronnie Dupree, Pat Patterson. I met there in 1961. Nice. Of course, by that time I was smart. Right. Uh, Terry Garvin, um, Don Kidred, Black Magic. Anyway, they lived in the same rooming house, okay. and I hung out with those guys. But they never smarted me up either. Wow. You know, and, and I would go. Uh, Tony's son. His oldest son uh, drove the, uh, the ring mm-hmm. truck, and so even there, you know, after I got a little more advanced, I would go to the shows, ride with him. We'd set the ring up, we'd get in and, and you know, uh, train and practice and roll around, and then we'd get a shower, get dressed, go eat, come back, watch the show, take the ring down, go back to Boston. Wow! And you know, so that that was, uh, but no, uh, it was. It was crazy. No, the guys knew if I walked, like when I was helping with the ring, if I had to walk in the dressing room or something, they just clammed up, right? I mean, didn't uh, stop talking completely, but yeah, know, yeah, can't pay. exactly, exactly. And that was the way it was. Yeah, so that was how it all started. Wow, that is super crazy, and it's crazy to hear the lengths you, uh, you and other people before you went to keep kayfabe, man. It's 
it goes to show if well, I, I don't know I don't know if obviously in today's world you couldn't do it because of social media and everything and how people are so it would be hard but did you ever think that kayfabe would ever be broken in your career uh, no I didn't oh, and, wow. and, you so, know I, I was had no problem abiding by you know by sure. kayfabe. yeah yeah of course it was never a problem for me out of that I want to say too out of the Santos school mm-hmm. Dusty Rhodes uh, trained there of course wow. it was nine years after me Right, right. Um, Crazy Luke Graham, uh, he broke in, uh, he trained there. He had his first match uh, November of 61. Actually, it was the day before I got married. Oh, wow. And um, uh, beautiful Bob Harmon, uh, who was the original beautiful Bobby, and worked for WWF. <laughs> right. Uh, he, he learned the business there as well. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was, you know, I look back at it and think, well, can we go back and do that again? <laughs> of course, I, I would be a lot younger, and that's really why I want to go back. <laughs> that makes sense. But yeah, it was, uh, but it was, you know, it, it was it was a simple time, of but a great time. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I, the, the, young, the, the wrestlers that were around me that were active, that lived in the same rooming house, mm-hmm. those guys have been in the business five, six, seven, eight years or longer. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were cool, you know. I mean, yeah. and once once I got started, you know, we all we traveled together, and everything was good. But yeah, I, like I say, I I work with well. I've got a poster uh, right here at, uh, on the wall in, in my in my den, uh, Mount Park Pavilion, mm-hmm. Wednesday, August the ninth, nineteen sixty one. That's in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Main event is gorgeous George Bell, who oh. is a Montreal boy. He's one of, one of your people. There you go. Yeah, he was from, from Montreal, right? And uh, with his valet against Jesse James, the East Coast champion, mm. and Pat Patterson wrestled Les Malady. Oh, Malady is my real last name. Okay, gotcha. And uh, yeah, so that's the first time I worked with Pat, and it was in 1961. Wow. That's cool. Well, there's a few things I do want to know, though, obviously. The one thing, dealing with the audience back in the day, dealing with crowds, dealing with fans, because obviously the fans thought that it was all real and everything. you have any crazy, like, fan-related stories you could share today? Oh, wow. Where I'm living now in Knoxville, Tennessee, this area. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me, or the, or the southeastern United States. Sure. I mean, you know, fans wanting to get to come in the ring was not uncommon oh okay and or, or real heat right serious heat <laughs> was not you know not uncommon either well you know back then steve most heels most mm-hmm. of the, at least like here in the southeastern united states sure most heels carried a gun in their gear bag wow Look well not so much that you they, I don't think any of them really said, well, I want to shoot somebody. Well, yeah, for protection. Some food. But yeah, yeah. Uh, the thing was that if, you know, you're the last guy out of the building, or the last couple guys, sure. and you're headed for your car in an empty parking lot, mm-hmm. and you get to, you get out there, and you, by the time you see your car, there's five or six guys standing around it with, with baseball bats or something, right? Oh, wow. Huge. All you have to do is brandish that gun, right. and they're gone. Right, right. Uh, but yeah, I was I was telling a story 
the other night, uh, right here in Greenville, Tennessee, in okay. East, Eastern Tennessee. One of the best heels ever had the opportunity to work with was a product of this part of the country, and he drew a lot of money in, in the, the Knoxville area okay. for years. His name's Ron Wright. But in Greenville, Tennessee, after a match, this, this was back in the, in the 70s, mm -hmm. um, he was, uh, two policemen were escorting him to the dressing room, okay. one in front and one behind him. And I guess some something there's some skirmish or something off to the side that the officer behind him stepped away to check on. Mm. And at that moment, a fan stepped in with a hawk-billed knife Ooh. and opened Ron up. Oh my God! From the waistline to the base of his neck. Wow! 175 stitches to close him up. That's crazy. That same now, the same heel, right? The same heel. Uh, he uh, he had a small uh, single engine Piper Cup. Okay. And he uh, he worked for Kodak Company in East in the Tri Cities area, uh, Kingsport, John City, Bristol, Tennessee. Okay. And uh, so the Piper Cup made it so he could make wrestling commitments, he'd come off his real job, jump at the plane, you know, and make the little hops into Kentucky and other parts of Tennessee and, and over into Virginia as well. Right. So he, uh, in Harlan, Kentucky, wrestling was big in Harlan. You may have heard a lot of things about Harlan, like people getting shot and mm -hmm. things like that, which is, I, I was never in on any of that, but <laughs> I, I figure it's all true. Right. Um, so anyway, and of course it wasn't a, a, a big airport. It's right. like a grass field, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and and then somebody had to come out and pick him up and take him back to the take him to the building. Okay. And so, you know, people talk, fans talk, or somebody sees him coming in. Like, hey, Ron Wright's got a plane. Mm -hmm. One night they went to take him back to his plane, and the plane was on fire. Oh, okay. Yes, the fans. The fans fire. set the damn plane on fire. Wow. Yeah. Welcome to the real world of professional wrestling. I was going to say, right? <laughs> and the, you know, and I tell these stories in front of some of these young wrestlers. They, sure, sure. they kind of think, ah, he's probably pulling my leg. Right. No, he's not. Yeah, First yeah. of all, boys, you wouldn't know how to get the kind of heat we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Short of having a scatter gun to shoot people. Right. Well, you know, they they don't, they don't, heat's not even in their vocabulary, I don't think. Right. right? It's there. It's it's entertaining themselves, but uh, yeah. So that was uh, yeah. Riots were not. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't a riot every night. Right, right. This you know this same guy. We were in Morristown, Tennessee. This was back. I had a partner, Whitey Caldwell, and Ron had a brother, Ron and Don Wright. Okay. And we drew big here from uh, early '69 until I went to Eastern, to the Maritimes, mm -hmm. in uh, April of, of 1970. Okay. And um, we were in Morristown, Tennessee. It was the, the four of us in a tag match. And there was no skirt on the, on the ring, you know, on the apron, or, you know, uh, to cover the, you know, the, the uh, uh, rods and stuff underneath. Right, gotcha. So anyway, the four of us are in the ring, and we're battling, uh, doing a little four-way thing, and, and I'm with Ron. He says, throw me out and follow mm -hmm. me. Okay. So I, I nail him, pitch him out. 
he goes under the ring, I follow him. And so now we're, you know, on our hands and knees crawling. I'm, we get midway, he turns around, we throw some punches. Anyway, he's got a roll of athletic tape in his tights. Okay. He somewhat taped it to the, to the frame. <laughs> you know, so he's taping my, by my neck. Mm-hmm. to the ring structure, right, to the frame underneath. Wow. And he's, again, you know, we're on our knees. Yeah. And he looks, he's looking past me and he says, oh, hell. Oh, no. one. Oh, I'm doing, oh, hell. And he starts, you know, backing out. Okay. He's still facing me, but he's getting out of the ring on, on the far side. Right. And, and of course, I can't move. Right? <laughs> I, I'm <laughs> And, and I, I can't get turned. What the hell is he looking at? Right. And then all of a sudden, I see movement in my peripheral vision. Okay. And there's a wrestling fan under there. Oh, my and God. And he's got a knife. Oh, my God. He was coming to protect me. Oh, okay. So in this instance, it was a good but, thing. <laughs> but then Ron had already shot out the other side and back up in the ring. Right. And so he turns around and said, I'll get you loose less. And I thought, yeah, you and that knife on my neck. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I right. said, don't worry, I got it. Right, <laughs> and I started ripping that tape off. I thought, don't get close to me with that, please. Wow. But yeah, I mean, but stuff like that wasn't uncommon. Right. It, 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 it wasn't a daily occurrence, right? Of course. Uh, I've been in one, two, three, four, I don't know, maybe a half dozen or more riots. Okay. And in truth, you know, the baby faces are as much in peril as a heel, although... The, the fans are going after the heels, right. but in trying to cover the heels and get them out of danger, mm-hmm. our backer to these people, so we can get hit with an errant chair, True. or somebody stumble and fall and, and cut you, whether they meant to cut you or not. Right. You know, it's just. Uh, but that was that was the way of the world. You know, <laughs> I'm talking about it. You know, those who've never wow. seen it, thinking, Jesus, that these people are insane. But it was, it was. Just business as usual for us then. Wow! Did you ever have the opportunity of wrestling in Puerto Rico? I uh, yes. Oh, I, okay. I did. Uh, never, never long term. Uh, when I was working the Tampa territory, oh, okay. uh, they ran sense. San Juan. Sure, that makes sense. And Nassau and and Freeport and the Bahamas. Oh, well. okay. I didn't know wrestling was big down there. Yeah. Well, I don't know how big it is now, but yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the Eddie Graham's office, the Tampa office, ran uh, right. Barbados, or, or excuse me, uh, Freeport and Nassau right. and San Juan. Oh, and then cool. I, I was over in San Juan later when Carlos Colon was running it as okay. a territory, you know, as a territory. Right. But what I went over for, he was running Barbados and Trinidad, which are English speaking mm, countries, of course. And so he'd fly me in for a couple of days, okay. and I would. Uh, they had this uh, other TV station that was out the other end of the aisle we could i go down there with one of his people mm-hmm. and do english opens and, clo- and and voiceovers the matches you know oh gotcha so yeah so i spent time over oh that's pretty cool yeah because i've had a lot of wrestlers on too that have their own puerto rican stories and it sounds exactly like your stories but these were like only 10 years ago so puerto rico is still a little yeah. bit behind well, you know uh, well the first time first time we were I, I don't know if it was called roberto clemente stadium at the time at the big stadium okay. and in San Juan, the first time I was ever there, we were wrestling out in the ballpark. Right. And of course, we had to go back to the dressing room through one of the dugouts. Oh, yeah, makes sense. So, uh, this is, nobody's in the, you know, the ring's not up or nothing. We're in the, the stadium, and 
so we, uh, we, and we dropped our bags and we walked outside. I forget who I was with, one of the guys who had been there before. So we go out and look around this and that. Mm-hmm. And so we'd get back to within, I don't know, 20, uh, 10 yards of the dugout steps. Okay. And he said, now, you know, tonight, when you get here, mm-hmm. don't walk. From here into that dugout, run. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because you're a gringo. Oh. And because they throw balloons with urine in them. Yep. Or, or, you know, so cover your head and run. Yep. So, and I was a baby face. <laughs> Go figure. Exactly, <laughs> right? gringo baby. <laughs> well, another yeah. thing I want to touch on quickly too, because you've had all you have had like pretty much a different career after wrestling, which I want to touch on as well. But the promos back in the day, obviously everything was off the cuff. You guys didn't do anything, but was there anyone who ever tried to bring up, hey, maybe we should do written promos to make it easier on us? I, you know, someone may have, but I couldn't tell you who that someone would be. It never crossed my mind. Okay. To me, that's that's one of the. Things today I would change if I, you know, if I had a trillion dollars and <laughs> was, you know, going to buy AEW or WWE or or one of these, you know, big companies. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, well, you know, and that's the thing too. Back then there were guys who could talk and guys who couldn't. And once you found out a guy couldn't, then you worked around that. He had a manager. He had right. a partner. Exactly. You know, uh, it was clever how we did things and just using a little common sense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing I think, too, today, you, you, you know that some of these kids, you tell, they're reciting what they've Thank you. remembered. They're bad actors. They're reading yeah. the script, right? Yeah. Um, and I, th- I wonder, could this kid be the next Roddy Piper, the next Dusty Rhodes, mm-hmm. the next whoever sure. I don't know because and you don't know either because you're he's not getting the chance to do that right you know you only find out if a guy can cut an interview by letting me doing it you know I mean uh, that's that's a crazy thing I think no it is that, and that's and I'm totally on the same page as you. I'm one of those guys where I love the shenanigans of anything could happen during a promo. And I've had a ton of people from the NWA, the most recent product of NWA, by owned by Billy Corgan. And they don't write their promo. So everything, and you could tell, because sometimes shit goes off the hooks and then you see even the announcers don't know what to say. And to me, that's that's fantastic TV. I love that shit. Well, you know, that's a crazy thing. I... Every, you know, I, I said to you, uh, joking before we start, you start recording. You know, mm-hmm. I've been living on the fly for all my life. But <laughs> I, that's that, that's a lie. That's just me being, uh, making it a, a fabrication. Right. But I don't understand the whole paint by numbers. Let you and I sit in the dressing room and talk for forty five minutes about our five minute match. Right. You know, I don't get it, and, and so and. The thing that the problem that that has created within the industry, mm-hmm. the average fan, I don't think, would notice, but I do, and people yeah. like me, I'm sure, is details suffer. Thank Facial you. expressions, body language. Yes. Uh, all those things suffer because... That's a big one. You're busy remembering spot number 45. Ah, so your brain's on somewhere else. And you're, you're not being creative... Here's, when I see, if you and I have all these spots, and, and then yeah. I get up 
10 seconds too quick and you're not to the top rope, I stand there looking like a freaking <laughs> idiot. True. Right? Yeah, and yeah. at the waist, peeking at you out of the corner of my eye. <laughs> right. You know, and, and I want to throw something at my TV when I see that. I know. Right? Because here's the deal. Steve, if you and I have worked this spot out and I come to my feet too soon, mm -hmm. first of all, I'm going to come up in a position. I'm not going to be facing you straight on. I'm going to be coming up so that I catch you in my peripheral vision. Mm. And if I see that you're not where you need to be, I'm probably going to stagger and drop back to a knee. Right. Or if, you know, or worse comes to worse, I'm going to be there and dragging your ass off that top rope before you have a chance to, but to stand there, well, that's like the, the stupidity of the dive. <laughs> you throw me out, you run 20 feet in the other direction, right. I stand there and watch you running 20 feet back, and I stand there and let you dive on me. Yeah. Uh, why? You know, I, when I run training classes, I tell, I said, you, you put me in the corner, right. you go to that far corner, and I'm 80 years old. I got a $100 bill in my pocket. Okay. If I'm still here when you come back, I'll give you that $100. Huh. Like it. Unless you have knocked me out and hung me in that corner or tied me in that corner, <laughs> why the hell am I there? You shot me in one buckle or you hit me with one forearm. I'm waiting there, Steve, because we laid it all out in the back. You're I right. can't move. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I see what you're saying. It's crazy. Hey. Improv wrestling, professional wrestling, is best served with improv. Well, I think so. And you, you know what? Like, uh, I don't want to sit here and just shit on all the flippy guys too, because I do enjoy it on occasion. But like everything, I don't want it to be the norm. Like, there's there's a place to do stuff. And to me, like, I agree. I totally agree. It throws you out of the context of the match when someone runs 20 feet and then jumps, and then someone's out there with their hands open catching them. To me, I think the outside spot should be either like some sort of slingshot onto the floor where someone's already lying down, something like that where it looks sort of still believable, right? Yeah, well, you know, I can't explain. I don't know if, you, if this will come across right in just you and I talking about sure. it without me being in a ring and trying to <laughs> show these kids. I know, right? <laughs> say I shoot you in the, say, you know, I've got you blocked in the corner. Okay. And let's say I'm, now I'm grabbing the middle rope with one hand on each side of you and yeah. I'm driving shoulders into your midsection, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. One, two. As I start to straighten up, I'm saying, move on the next one. Now, as I say that, I'm going to turn to my right, mm -hmm. fire out away from you probably two, three steps, okay. not 20 feet. Right. And then I'm going to come right back around to my right and come like I'm put that drive that shoulder through you. Mm -hmm. You sidestep me. I hit that buckle. Bam, I straighten up, sell it, turn back, and as I turn back to my right, I see you, look, and I'm pissed now. I come through that big left hand, <laughs> you hook it for an arm drag, take me over, and we've got a spot. Exactly. Thank you. Yep. And it's and look how but simple it is element, in theory. But you moved, but it was the element of surprise. Thank you. If you move and I'm 20 feet away, of course you moved. Yeah. <laughs> and why wouldn't you move? Because then you're an idiot. There? Exactly. <laughs> That is so true, my God. Yeah, it's it, again. It's those little things, like how everyone says. Well, and it's, you know what? It's become though too. It's monkey see, monkey do. 
Well, and that's the other, and again, these kids, all they care about, like we talked about before coming on air too, is the hits, it's the numbers, it's the social media presence, that's all anyone cares about, But and, and that's fine, because... I want to read it, somebody gave me a four stars, Well, I give you four stars, ever take a bump, no, okay, then pay no attention to the damn... Well, there you stars. go, and I sort of go on that thinking as well, but who am I to say stuff like that has to come from a professional wrestler like yourself, but yeah, it's just, it's just weird how... The easy stuff is all lost, and I get it. You want to get your name out there, that's fantastic. But then once you get noticed, what are you bringing to the table? Because it's great to walk in through the door, but then if you have one match and you fizzle out, what was it all for? Well, you know, the, the, the promotional-wise, they've all got three different initials. Yeah, right? true. Ring of Honor, <laughs> Impact, AEW, WWF, yeah. WWE, excuse me. Right. But, you know what? In essence, and they would all hate me for saying this, but I'm going to say it. They're all the same. Mm. What's the difference? Now, I see some great wrestling on AEW because Dragon's there and uh, Bobby Fish now. Right. And, you know, and they're, they're giving me some real wrestling. Sure. It's not bad comedy and fly, <laughs> fly, fly, spot, spot, spot. To me, Steve, watching some of these kids, it's basically public masturbation. <laughs> they're in, well, no, they're entertaining themselves. Right? I, I see where you're coming from. Yeah, yeah. They they don't know the people are there. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I mean it's, it's crazy, but I know I with you know guy uh, independence that you see some you know uh, promise with. Mm -hmm. You want to try and you say, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> what do you mean? Well. You know, when I say listen to the people, I don't mean clap your friggin' hands and ask them to get behind you. Ah, uh, okay. Because first of all, if you're a baby face and work for me, you don't clap your hands and I'll tell you not to. Oh. Because that's, that's if you as a baby face are doing the job a baby, that a baby face is supposed to do in this match, mm -hmm. then the people are already with you. You don't have to ask them. Right. Yep. If you're a heel, the same thing. They're already against you. You don't have to turn around and say, that fat bitch in the front row. That's <laughs> not heat. That's just stupid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? It's, it's the interaction between you as a heel, me as a baby face, mm -hmm. that should create the stir in the audience. Right. Uh, when I see a, you know, a baby face start stomping his foot and clapping his hands and the people clap, you know what? <laughs> Why? <laughs> because they're going. When you stop clapping, they're going to stop too. That is true, right? You can you can also suck your thumb, and some of them will probably suck their thumb too. Right? It's it's true. That and, and part of that, of course, is the fact that today, and it's not just in wrestling. The fans want to be a part of the show. Yeah, I was just going to say they like they to want hijack to be the show. entire show. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Yeah, I've heard that before plenty of times. And, and you know what? simple little things that drive me nuts. Mm. If I shoot you into the buckle and I go up on that, put my feet up on that second rope and I'm going to throw a punch, Steve, mm. I'll guarantee you I'm not going to do 10 punches so the fans can count with you. <laughs> sure. That's, please, that's, stop it. Please, yeah. everybody, just stop it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'm going to throw one or two if they start counting. I may throw three and now I'm getting down. Sure. The fans don't run my match. I run my match. There you go. It's true. And that's and how it should be. when they know what you're going to do before you do it, then don't do it. Right? And then to me, that's even better storytelling because now you got them on the edge of the seat. That's the, you're right. That's the story. That's the way. 
I'd mentioned Leo Garamaldi. Leo, one of Leo's best, uh, sayings that I'll never forget. Okay. You know, you want to give the people what they want, just never when they expect it. Ah, that is a great saying. And today, more so than 50 years ago, mm-hmm. today, the element of surprise is far more important than it ever was because they are smart, or they Thank think you. they are. They're, when, when somebody says everybody's smart, mm-hmm. and I say, you're not very smart for saying that. Because yeah. no, everybody's not. They think. Right? Yes, exactly. But they don't really know. Anyway, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, you know, uh, so the element of surprise. That's one of my problems, too. I can, you, you almost know in some of these matches you watch on the TV what's going to happen before it happens. Yes. You've seen it. Yeah. So, and so often. Yeah. And, and the other thing is everybody, in the, everybody does the same thing. Mm-hmm. Every match has at least two dives. Right. Super quick. 9,000 false finishes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, and, and here, now, here's a comparison. Okay. And, and everybody says they understand my point when I make this comparison, but they continue to do it anyway. Okay. You know, are you married, Steve? <laughs> yes, I am. Okay. You remember the first time you ever saw your wife naked? Oh, well, of course. That's edged in my brain forever. <laughs> do you remember the 300th time and don't bother to answer me? Because I have the same answer as you okay. or any other. If we ask another thousand men, they will have the same answer as well. Right. The answer is no. <laughs> Why? Because it's become complacent. Right. It's become commonplace. Right. So now we have eight matches on the card. The first match has three dives. Mm-hmm. The second match has two dives. Right. Third match, God love him, only has one. <laughs> then the fourth match has three. Yeah. Okay. When is the difference between and when everybody knocks old school I, I want to shoot somebody <laughs> well, you gotta the point it. is what you can learn from us mm-hmm. is not to do the same things over and, and over, over yeah. and over and over again yep. in front of the same people oh that's true right? too I mean we use the same finishes more than once we use the same move but not in the same bit. when I watch some of these TV well uh, somebody had listed uh, next week's Rampage. Right. I saw that on the internet this morning. Okay. They taped it already. Yeah, yeah. Sure. And they were just, you know, they didn't show it, but it's like the first match, I forget what the first match was, and this and this and this, and then so-and-so runs in for the save. Right. Second match, this and this, and so-and-so runs in for the save. Yeah, you got all the spoilers. And so-and-so runs in for the save. Do you see a problem there? Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. So, so how special it? That's the other. If if I bought one of these promotions today, I don't care. How, the, my problem with AEW is nine thousand eight hundred eighty-one factions. Oh, see, I'm on the opposite end of that. I love myself factions. I don't know what it is about yeah. it, but okay. I love uh, it. I, I know one faction, two factions in my lifetime that actually drew money. Okay. Horsemen. NWO and the Four Horsemen. Okay, makes sense. Sure. Name, name me a third one. I guess you could put DX up there, maybe. Oh, okay. If if you want, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I see what you're saying, though. Yes, they, they were more an entertainment group opposed to a <laughs> kick-ass group. Right, right, right. I, I mean, they, they they were great workers too, you know. But right, it was a different dynamic, really. Okay. But yeah, okay. And that's my problem mm. because this business, the way people got over, the way Ric Flair got over, Ricky Steamboat, Lou Fez, Pat right. O'Connor. God, I can sit here and name 
everybody <laughs> I've ever worked with. <laughs> the way they got over is as individuals or as tag two people in a tag team. Mm. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay, and I, I, I play this game. A friend of mine here who grew up in Memphis, okay. uh, they're wrestling, right? He's in his 50s. He comes over and watches the shows with me sometimes. Sure. And he, I, I did this with him at AEW. Okay. One of the factions would come out, and I'd say, okay, you know, uh, we know the lead guy. Right. Who are, who are the bit players? Mm-hmm. I don't know their names. Oh, okay. I don't either. Right. That could be a problem. <laughs> well, how do you, why, why do you need... Why do you need to cast the thousands? I, well, the whole what, what, what is the significance of those people? Well, well, the way I was explained why factions existed was to put people together that weren't getting over to get everyone over at the same time. And if you don't know someone's name in a faction, why are they in a faction? <laughs> well, if you if somebody can't get themselves over, you're not going to get them over in a crowd. That is true too, I guess. You see, I know yeah. it is. <laughs> I've been to that dance. Uh, of course, of course. You would know best. And, and see, there's the difference, too. Mm. I'm saying I I, I did. Right. I did, I'm not saying I heard, I think, I read, or you I was told. You did it. Yes, exactly. And, and realize this, too. Mm. I was talking to a young man here the other night at, okay. at, a, at a dinner that I attended. Mm-hmm. And um, he was telling me, uh, we were t- mentioned uh, Brian Danielson and uh, Omega's match. Right. Okay. And uh, I said, "Yeah." And he said, "I said, no, Omega is not that great." Oh. What do you mean? Okay. What do you mean? I said, "Well, he's not. Mm. He's good, but he has to be elevated. He doesn't elevate." I, I see said, what you're "Okay." He has never had a match in AEW that matched what he did with Okada or Tanahashi in New Japan. Mm, that, that is true. And until him and Dragon, he's not even gotten close. Mm-hmm. That is because, and, and this is not a knock, some of, some people can lead and elevate others. Some are, are great mechanically work, mechanical workers, right. but they need to be elevated. I mean, it's not a, it, it's just, people right yeah. it's human beings it's not well Les Thatcher said he's, he's not worth the shit <laughs> right, no I'm right. not saying that exactly thank you but Okada and Tanahashi elevated him right and so did Dragon mm-hmm. but he now he can take a completely green guy and yes he can make that guy but right. somebody that we're talking about at the upper tiers the upper level not so much mm. Uh, another uh, going way back into I don't know you may not even remember this and I I do because I'm such a huge fan of, of Benoit and his work. Oh yeah, okay. Um, that whole family. We're, we won't get into that, but oh well, yeah, of course. You know, I was close to the family and everything. But okay. Chris, never mind all that. Yeah, his work. Chris Benoit is one of the ten best workers I have ever seen in my life. End of story. Yeah, right that's there. fair to say. Yeah, of course. But I remember when they first tried to push. MVP years ago. Okay. And I'm thinking, why? Uh, uh, he's okay. Uh, uh. Right. Playing with Benoit for, I think, Series 3 matches. Mm-hmm. MVP, MVP looked the best I've ever seen look. See that? He stopped working with Benoit. He still was better, but he not as good. Mm. 
And let me say that applies to me. That applies to, you realize somebody can elevate Ric Flair. Of course. How's that possible? Well, it's just, it's the chemistry between the two people. That's what it is, yes. You know, yep. it's not necessarily their mechanical skills. Mm -hmm. It's the chemistry. It's true. And uh, the details. Yeah, but I, I was telling this guy that was talking, you know, we were talking about this, and I said, realize, and, and you know, about the difference between working with Tanahashi, say, and whoever, right. you know, yeah, yeah. in AEW. Uh, he said, I never looked at it that way. I know. I said, no, and I didn't expect you to. I said, realize this. Mm -hmm. I wrestled for 20 years in ring. Okay. I'm a trainer. Yep. I was a booker, oh. television producer, right, <laughs> and a promoter. Yep. So, so you know what I, I look at the, in, what's in the I break it down like in a prism. Right. I, I don't see it just one way. No, of course. And and, and when I say this, I, I'll, I'll tell you that the, my worst thing is, about me is I am a perfectionist, and I know that nothing is perfect. Right. And um, but I can you you and I can sit down and watch a Steamboat Flare match, mm -hmm. and I'll point out places where it could be better. And, and I'll have no and idea you know, what I, you're talking about as a fan. Steamboat <laughs> and Flare will point that out to you as well. Of course. The great, you know. I, I we did uh, we had a, a, a thing called Elite Pro Wrestling. Learn from the legends. Okay. Steamer and, and Harley and I were the first guys to do multiple day camps. You know, back to back weekends. Okay. Days, okay. Uh, back in the early uh, 2000s, and um, one of the things we always told the, the kids is between the three of us, we are not sure how many thousands of matches we've ever had. Wow. We we have yet to have our best. See Meaning. That? That we're never satisfied. Exactly, right? And that's how and it should be. the great workers that I know uh, never are. Right, and it shows. You know, and and, and the problem today is, and, and you know, everything is so quick. It has to be so fast. Yeah. Oh well, I I went to I went to tra wrestling training for twelve weeks. <laughs> uh, okay, and what are you telling me that? Well, go for another twelve, and maybe twelve more after that. I don't know. You. <laughs> I, you to me, I don't. I'm, I could never do. When I had my school, yeah, uh, it was uh, you paid me to train with me for six months, uh, and I did four sessions a week. Okay, and I, if you're going to work for me, your ass better be in that ring three of those four sessions because that's the other difference between our generation and the current. Right. There were gr many, many great workers in the '60s and '70s. Yes, there are today some great acrobats. Mm -hmm. Great athletes, but yep. damn few great workers. No, and, and because it is true. they're in such a hurry. I know. <laughs> I know. And, I know. And, they, and again, it comes back that they don't pay attention to the details. <clears throat> and of course, part of that is their mind. They're in the back of their minds. I'm sure they're all everybody's smart. Yeah. But, but okay, here's another parallel. Okay. Try this, sure. Steve. Go for it. Okay, everybody's smart. They all know it's a work. Oh, okay. Guess what? When mm. I was nine years old, I knew Roy Rogers wasn't really killing those bad cowboys. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. But I, he drew me in anyway. Mm -hmm. And at age 80, I also know that dramatic television shows I'm hooked on aren't real. <laughs> exactly. But <laughs> what I am hooked on is excellent acting, mm -hmm. excellent writing, 
excellent execution and leaving me wanting something. Thank you. Yeah, that's a big one. The base, and, and here, I, I'm all about analogies and comparisons. I'll drive you nuts. We may be here till Monday. Who knows? <laughs> anyway. Well, you know, let's look at the movie industry. Right. The movie that won Best Dramatic Film this year, I don't know because I don't, you know, I don't follow it that closely. Yeah, yeah, I'm the same way. My don't point know. is this. The movie that won Best Dramatic Film in 2021 and the movie that won Best Dramatic Film in 1950 mm. have a lot in common. Now, what they have different verbiage, of course, technology, yeah, costuming, but the one thing they have in common and will never change are the sound fundamentals and basics mm. that make a great dramatic film. Right. It's true. And the sound basics and fundamentals that make a great wrestling match in 1960 you stupid asshole, are the same as that should be the same today. Exactly. My question, still a you know, and not only my question, I, I, I speak of, you know, publicly, uh, not like my dear friend Jimmy Cornette, although I wish I had the balls to talk the way he does. <laughs> I would love to. Um, but that's, you know, nobody looks at it that way. Right? Yeah. It's all a show. It's true. Yeah, you you got to take a little bit of the old and incorporate it with the new. You can't have it just one way or the other. I think it has to be a mesh of both. Well, you know, and, and another, another thing, I, this nonsense about, uh, all, I, I say, all your matches are short enough. Well, you know, uh, wrestling fans don't have a attention span. I mm-hmm. said, really? Wow, I didn't know that. What do you mean? I said, well, I talked to one the other day that uh, <clears throat> watched a movie. Okay. It was two hours long. <laughs> they watched the whole movie. Right. You see. Where, why, you think? Because it was uh, good. I don't know. Let me tell you why. Because it was quality acting, yep. quality writing, quality cinematography, quality quality everything. Mm-hmm. And they took, well, you know, a, a movie that I used to, to young kids is, Scarface. I don't know if you've seen it or not. That's my favorite movie of all. I'm looking at a poster of it right now in, in my studio. And, and you've watched it 9,000 times, right? I could recite it word for word pretty much, yes. Thank you. <laughs> all right, but what I tell the kids, you watch that movie. Yes, okay, a good wrestling match is like, now, Scarface, they started as a child in the streets. Mm-hmm. And they took two hours to get you to that big gun battle in, in the mansion. Thank you. They didn't give you the gun battle at the opening of the freaking show <laughs> and go backwards to his childhood. Right. They built a foundation under the story to carry it up. There you go. You know? Yep. And that's and and you watched it for two hours. How can you do that? You're a wrestling fan. <laughs> See, to me, it's all frivolous nonsense right. because it's, I'm lazy, mm-hmm. I don't want to work hard, I don't want to train in the, in the weight room every, you know, five days a week or, or whatever, I don't want to practice in the ring. Why, I took a 12-week course, mm-hmm. and I wrestle once a month. I may be the next Ric Flair. <laughs> right. 
sure. Checks in the mail, I won't come in your mouth. How's that? <laughs> oh, well, Les, I know we're running a bit short on time. I wanted to touch on some other your ventures throughout your career. Like, oh, sure. I, I didn't. I, listen, you know, well, I got 60. You want to talk about 61 years? <laughs> Well, you know what? I'll have to have you back on so we could just talk shop no, further. I'm, I'm just teasing, Steve. Go ahead. Listen, I, I didn't mean to get carried away. But no, no, no. I love it. Like uh, this, The show's all about the guests. It's not about me. It's people tune in to I'll listen to you. i one of the guys up there that I, I watch on Twitter now, and mm. he and I have had a nice phone conversation. Okay. Tyson Dukes? Yeah, of course. Former guest of the show. I love him. Yeah, he's, he's a younger man who actually has a head on his shoulders. <laughs> I, I watched, you know, the videos he puts up on. That's how we hooked up. I was watching the videos he puts up on Twitter. Okay. And, uh, yeah, he's, uh, I'm sure he teaches the right way, no question. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to uh, cut you off. Go ahead. No, no, no worries at all. Take, so Take me where you want to go, boss. Well, I was just going to say, we're going to lead into the word story of the week and wrap this up, but I did want to touch on your drag racing, your bodybuilding. Like, you did all this stuff prior and after wrestling and it's just crazy the different path but one thing i do want to know what gives you more of an adrenaline rush drag racing or when you have a so-called in your mind a perfect match wow i would have liked to win the national championships at indianapolis and the nhra national championships in my class right but I, well you know well, i love i love you know the crazy thing is I, I was still race, driving race cars uh, up until well, six years into my wrestling career. Oh, really? Okay. So I, I was trying oh. to balance both. Okay. Well, okay. what I was doing, my, my, it was a family thing. My, my dad, my dad, uh, my mom were involved. And um, anyway, I would uh, get home. I, I, I'd go out and wrestle other places, but I would then try to hook up with the Detroit or Indianapolis territory. Mm-hmm. Um, in the spring, so I could come home, Dad, I get the race car ready. Okay. Right? And then race through the summer, into the, into the, like, you know, maybe, maybe up to this time mm-hmm. of the year. Um, and then, you know, uh, put the car on locks and, and go back on the road again. Wow. But I was still wrestling around home. I, there were times, uh, like when we were racing and wrestling, mm-hmm. if I was working for the Indianapolis office, I might be in some, uh, some show over in Western Indiana somewhere, you know, and it's like I get home on Saturday morning at like 2 a.m. Right. So I get a few hours sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I get up. Dad and I hook the race car up to the tow car, and uh, he drive to the track. I get up in the race car and sleep in the car on the way to the track wow. to get a couple more hours of sleep. Uh, and we did well with our racing, mm-hmm. you know, uh, regional and stuff, but we just... The reason I finally, okay, I, I realized at this point I'm losing money in the wrestling business. Oh. Drag, okay. I've got a few partial sponsors in drag racing, but I, I haven't hit to where I can, you know, my expenses are covered by somebody else yet. Right. So at that point, okay, it's time to hang it up, go on the road full time, and that's what I did. So. so there you go. But yeah. I, I was driving a racetrack before I ever had a driver's license. I was oh. I was driving race cars when I was 15 years old. Wow, look at that, eh? That's cool. And the bodybuilding was, that was like, uh, I needed a challenge or, or an adrenaline rush or something. I don't know. Sure. Anyway, you know, when, um, of course, you know, I was 
uh, I was working with body competitive bodybuilders. Okay. I'd, I'd left. Well, I was I left here where I'm living now in Knoxville in '85 and moved back to Cincinnati because my dad had passed away, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I went you know back to help my mom, and uh, you know got involved with Perillo Performance. You can look them up on the internet. Okay. Uh, John uh, has his own line of supplements. Is uh, designed some great weightlifting equipment, but trains uh, bodybuilders at all levels and, and was an MPC, which is the National Physique Committee. Okay. He was a national judge with them and, and so forth. He's based in Cincinnati, and that's that's actually how I met Brian Pillman. But oh, anyway, okay. uh, so I was working with bodybuilders and helping them get ready, and I thought, damn it, I just, uh, you know, I needed something to challenge myself, I guess. So at age mm. 46... I said, I'm going to do one show just to do it. Say I say I have, right? Yeah, why not? So I dieted and, and the whole thing. and so, But I got hooked because I won my class. The first oh. show I ever had. <laughs> and so 13 more shows later, <laughs> age 54, right. I said, enough's enough. Right? So, oh, so I, cool. I still lift. I was at the gym this morning. I was at the gym at 6.30 this morning. Oh, wow. Look at that. That's great. And again, and, speaking of uh, working hard. Worked, worked back and buys and abs a little bit and then came home and fixed a protein shake. And wow. Yeah, I, I still love it. I, I, you know, I still, lifting is, is part of my life and, and uh, you know, I, I enjoy it. And uh, it's, it's tough to think that at 80, I might be in better shape than some of the kids I see on the indie scene. <laughs> <laughs> it is true. It is true. Wow. It is. Oh, that's so awesome. All right, ready for the word story of the week. <laughs> Let's see how weird this one is. Well, it's not really that weird. It's more, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how this could happen. But anyways, I'm sure we've all lost something we've loved at one point or another in our lives. Like, I mean, like inanimate objects or even misplaced something. Like, you know what I mean? I'm not talking about death here. So I assume everyone knows that feeling when you're just like losing your cell phone, your keys, whatever, right? Well, this week's story comes from the country of Turkey, where a man and his friend went drinking in a nearby forest. So what could go wrong with that? Two grown men going into a forest, drinking overnight. Ah, nothing could happen, right? So later that night, one of the men got a hysterical phone call from the other man's wife. So supposedly they left the forest and they went to separate ways. So one of the wives called the other man and was like, yo, I'm, my husband's not home yet. What the hell are you doing home? Where is he? And he's like, I don't know. I left him there. He was drinking and whatever. So she freaked out, called the authorities, whatever. They started a search committee right away. So the next morning, the search committee was out through the forest, pillaging, looking for the missing man. And they stumbled across someone sleeping in a cabin. So this man decided to help the search team as well, because he's like, oh, someone's missing? Yeah, no problem. I'll give you guys a hand. So they're out there searching, searching, searching. And then it gets to the point where he's noticing everyone's yelling out his name. And he's like, oh, shit, they're looking for me. So the missing man joined his own searching team. <laughs> Can you imagine that? <laughs> All right. <laughs> How drunk does one got to get? We'll probably see that on TV in a few weeks. <laughs> you think maybe? I don't know. You never know, but that is some kind of story. You could you could do some kind of comedy skill with that. <laughs> yeah, you could. Yeah, you really could. Uh, how did how did you get hooked on wrestling? How uh, me? It was oddly enough. Uh, I hate to say it because I'm such a huge fan now. I used to hate it as a child. 
I have two older brothers, like way older, like 10, 11 years older than me. And they used to put it on back when it was WWF superstars and it was on, on, on Saturday afternoon. And it would right. scare the living shit out of me seeing these muscular men beating each other up. Again, I'm a small child. I think it's still real, right? So it scared me. I would cry every time they put it on. But then after I was at a cousin's house and they rented WrestleMania 4 and that tournament format and that whole style and everything, that's it. Game over. I fell in love and it's, that's the way it's been ever since. Wow. You know, I, I didn't tell you. I was uh, at WrestleMania in Toronto. It was it 2001? Oh, I was there too in the audience. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was under a contract to uh, at Developmental. Oh, at okay, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Full circle, full circle. Well, Les, thank you very much for coming aboard. Really appreciate you taking your time and talking to me today. Plug anything you want to, any socials, any upcoming events. Floor's all yours, my friend. Well, you know, I'm helping Ron. Ron Fuller has a um, YouTube channel called Southeastern Rewind. It's it's mostly about uh, old Southeastern shows, USA, Continental tapes that uh, he, you know, his promotions, right? Mm-hmm. And I helped him build a promotion here, Southeastern in 74 and Ron and I've been friends for 50 years anyway uh, it's on YouTube oh. and I'm involved in that now and um, I'm, I'm still available for training sessions uh, I can do one day seminars prefer weekend camps honestly uh, because they the trainees get more out of it you know we can cover everything and cover more things uh, if someone's interested in me uh, to book me as a trainer uh, you can reach me, lesthatcher28 at gmail.com. Be more than happy to send you out all the uh, information and, and cost and this and that and the other thing. I will say this. Um, I will guarantee you, give me two weeks with whoever, and if, they're, if their ears are open and they're paying attention, I promise to send them away <laughs> with some tools to make their performances, their, their in-ring performances better and hopefully make the promoters they work for draw more, you know? Um, so I am available for that. Uh, you know, we put out, I mentioned Brian Pillman, uh, Joe Dombrowski and I, who just signed with MLW, put out the uh, Brian Pillman uh, anthology, uh, the, uh, the 20th anniversary. When oh. Brian passed away. Right. I, I ran four uh, uh, Brian Pillman memorial shows. Uh, yeah, spit it out, Les. <laughs> 98, 99, 2000, 2001. Okay, Cincinnati. okay. And that that disc, uh, it's a four disc set, 15 hours of content. Wow. It's available at uh, pillmanshow.com and at joe-dombrowski.com as well. It's a four disc set, 15 hours, like I said, and uh, all kinds of extras and stuff on there. The cool thing about these shows, if you weren't there, you, you, you haven't seen them. Right. And... Um, as they continue to build, this was the only place in the world that you could see ECW, WCW, and WWF talent all under the same roof on the same night. Crazy. And I'm proud that, you know, that they allowed me to do that. Well, and one of the things that we found out as we were putting this together, Mm -hmm. that the first ever singles match between John Cena and Randy Orton... Okay was at the, uh, the last Pillman show in, night, in 2001. Wow. That was the first time. And neither one of them had ever been on the main roster at that point. Right, right. See that? Yeah, they were an OVW at the time. Yes, exactly. Wow. So anyway, that's that's, cool. that's available out there as well. Nice. And uh, 
Ron Fuller and I do a rewind review uh, covering the the old tapes that that, uh, that air on the uh, the YouTube channel. You know, mm-hmm. we're breaking it down, talking about some of the behind the scenes stuff and this and that and the other thing. But I've enjoyed it. We need like, three or four more hours, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> not right now. <laughs> well, like I said, doors always open, my friend. I will definitely have you back for sure. Oh, we'll do it again. Yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. And for myself, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter under Finger Styles. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, the podcast DAP. Email us your thoughts, suggestions, the comments. Podcast. I like that. <laughs> well, it's a riff on my last name. I can tell. Well, no, here's the thing, though. It's, it's, it's a sort of a riff on my last name. I don't really use my last name in public, but it starts in D, it starts as DA. So I was like, duh, ah. duh. So I'm like, instead of just being T-H-E, oh, okay. why not the I podcast? So there you go. And yeah, you can find me on all the socials. Email us your thoughts, suggestions, comments, anything you want to get off your chest at the podcast, dap at oh, gmail.com. And, and I don't know sure. how, how far spread I across podcasts. They'll probably hear you in Timbuktu somewhere. But Of course. Um, what, the Fuller and I did this past Wednesday. We're doing the second one, the 24th of November, the day before, Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Okay. At Calhoun's on the river here, near the University of Tennessee, Nailing Stairs, right down on the on the uh, Tennessee River. There you so go. It's a beautiful restaurant. Anyways, we call it Dinner with a Stud. Oh, And Ron nice. does, you know, the stud cast, his podcast. Right. And so we did the first one this past Wednesday night. Uh, it's a It's a two-hour event. Live podcast, uh, live podcast for an hour, mm-hmm. and then we had Doctor Tom with us. And the second hour, uh, the three of us uh, open for Q and A Q&A session. We have door prizes. There you go. And you get your meal. It's uh, Calhoun's is known in, in this region for their barbecue, oh, and nice. it's a barbecue uh, buffet: baked beans, coleslaw, rolls, uh, drink, and there's a cash bar if you want alcohol. Right. Or right. you get door prizes uh, and, and that sort of thing. So. Uh, I'm not sure where our guests are going to be, but we're doing this uh, the second one, the 24th, uh, Wednesday, the 24th of November, the day before Thanksgiving, here in Knoxville at Calhoun's. If anyone listening is interested, they can go to tnstud.com and click on the, the icon that says Stud Store, and you can make your reservation there. It's only 30 bucks. Plus, yeah. we give everybody that attends an autographed picture of Ron and an autographed picture of myself. And uh, plus your meal and, and a chance to win a door prize. So 30 bucks is not a big offering at all. So Yeah, no, that that is a steal. So please check that out. And please check out my sponsors. Rewind to the top of the show. Support them because if it helps them out, it helps sure. me out. And all that fun stuff. Rate, subscribe, review. Everyone knows the deal. So once again, Les, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. It's been an honor. And yes, we will definitely do this again, my friend. Stephen, thank you so much for having me. I've really had fun. I hope I haven't driven you nuts with it. But you, you, you have a good weekend. Take care of yourself. God bless, okay? Likewise. He's Les. I'm Steve. This is the podcast. Peace.